Father Xantus once said, Tragedy is just a setback, not an end. Though our place of worship was destroyed and our previous priest, Father Tobin, perished in the flame, we have persevered as Desna would desire and built anew. Today is our day of new beginnings, our day of ascension. Friends of Sandpoint, I declare the Swallowtail Festival officially underway. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about Monopoly. Oh, crap, no, this episode goes out on April 1st. No, we're not talking about Monopoly. We will never talk about Monopoly. But what we will talk about is the Rise of the Rune Lords Adventure Path, starting with Burnt Offerings, the first module in the Rise of the Rune Lords Adventure Path. So let's talk real quick about why we want to cover Rise of the Rune Lords. Later this year, Pathfinder is releasing its second edition. And we kind of wanted to cover where they originally started, where Paizo's Adventure Paths started out. Paizo did have Adventure Paths that were published in Dragon Magazine in more typical Dungeons and Dragons settings before Rise of the Rune Lords. Rise of the Rune Lords, while it used the 3.5 rules for D&D, was the first Adventure Path that was set in the world of Galarian. And so it's really the first glimpse we get of the Pathfinder setting and what they were setting out to do. And I think it sets a very excellent tone for the entirety of the work. So, before you even get around to playing Rise of the Rune Lords, you should look through the Player's Guide. The Player's Guide, for every adventure path, lets you know what to expect, what not to expect, and what's basically going on. What type of characters you can expect to play, and kind of gives you a good reason to want to get into this adventure. What I love about the Pathfinder Adventure Paths Player's Guides is that they give a fairly good overview of what you can expect from the adventure without spoiling anything because they are written by the writers of the adventure so it gives the exact information that the player characters are expected to have going into things. Now the original Rise of the Rune Lords player's guide that was released with the original Rise of the Rune Lords adventure path is actually kind of a primer on Galarian. It has a lot of the basics that you need to play a character in Varicia. Gives you a quick overview of some of the aspects of the setting, including the races and the classes of the game and what they mean, and moreover, gives you the full list of standard deities in the setting. Of course, omits some of the minor deities in the setting, but it's got all of the major ones that one might consider when making a cleric, and if you don't have the Inner Sea World Guide or the Pathfinder Campaign setting, I don't remember which one was released at that time, but the one that gave all the information on the saying, this primer is enough to actually feel pretty well immersed in the Pathfinder setting and ready for this adventure. Let's get into the first module of the Rise of the Rune Lords adventure path, Burnt Offerings. The module opens up with the player characters, for one reason or another, being at the Swallowtail Festival in Sandpoint. Sandpoint is a small little town in Varicia proper, and a number of years back, their church got burned to the ground, and the Swallowtail Festival is the rededication ceremony of their church. Now, 
the player characters come in and the Swallowtail Festival has a number of speeches going on and games and all sorts of nice little things to get the player characters to have a little bit of fun at a festival before things go sideways. One of the great things about this, I think, is that it does do a good job of easing the characters into the situation so that when things begin to go south, they have a little bit of a vested interest in what's going on there. They've had an excellent time at this festival. Their characters may have made some new friends or met some of the people of the city. And all of that gives you a way to immerse the characters in the setting and make them care about the outcome of the next portion. And the next portion is, of course, if you're familiar with D&D or games like that, these sort of festivals never go off without a hitch. And in this case, there's a goblin raid. Now, the goblin attacks happen at a prescribed point. When the priest dedicates the temple, he starts out his speech by throwing down a thunderstone. This is the signal for all of the goblins to attack. And these goblin attacks are meant to be run with a combination of humor and horror. While the goblins are going to be menacing children and attacking dogs, they're also going to be diving off of roofs trying to attack people and misjudging the jump and falling flat on their face, breaking their necks. Great thing about goblins is they're kind of the iconic monster of the Pathfinder setting. And goblins in Pathfinder are a bit more flavorful than the ones that you find in standard D&D ever since the very first edition. Most goblins are just like tiny orcs that aren't quite as tough and are a little bit more prone to stealth than the straightforward method. But Pathfinder goblins have like an entire personality and culture built around them. You know, they're obsessed with fire. They love to sing vicious nonsense songs. They despise dogs and horses. They are major firebugs just like burning everything in sight. They have voracious appetites, and they have these gigantic oversized heads that make them sort of humorous creatures that look at the same time menacing and a bit whimsical. And like maybe they're a misformed creature created by some mischievous wicked god who decided to curse the world with these vicious little monsters. And so they make a great antagonist and a set piece in this. They kind of give an introduction to the iconic monster of the Pathfinder world. And on top of that, it's a really fairly simple, straightforward battle encounter with a few little interesting twists like the presence of a war chanter, which is a goblin bard who sings the vicious little goblin songs, and a few goblin commandos. One of the little things that should happen in this little section is there's a nobleman whose dog gets attacked and is being menaced by some goblins. The player character should come over and help save him, and he becomes thoroughly enraptured with the player characters. This is important. But the attacks go off, and the player characters are really eased into the combat system of Pathfinder, and they run them off, and they become local heroes. One of the great things about this is that this battle is probably a little underpowered for starting characters, which is great because it lets the player characters experiment with how their characters run together. A lot of times when we make our characters, we're making them in the vacuum of just designing a character and making a character that we want to play. And when we actually 
put them out into the world and start playing with other characters, we need sort of a fairly simple, straightforward battle that lets us ease into it and understand what our character is capable of and what the other characters in the party are capable of in practical terms beyond just what we're able to look at on our character sheet. But as you were saying, afterwards, the player characters are local heroes having gone to great lengths to help thwart this goblin battle. Now, this section of the module is, in my opinion, the weakest part, mostly because it's made up of a number of small little scenes and vignettes that may or may not work well. There are seven parts here, and John and I both agree that really you only need to run five of them. The first one that you want to run at some point is the discovery of the desecrated vault. The sheriff of town will come to the player characters and go, hey, I need some help. My men don't like going into graveyards and whatnot. They're a bit superstitious, a little bit spooked. They go into the graveyard and find that the tomb of the town's former priest has been raided. Moreover, if they have a high enough survival skill, they will notice that there are large man-sized tracks among the goblin tracks, and that the vault, the remains of the priest, have been taken out. This is upsetting. The next part that you really want to have happen is the boar hunt. The noble that you helped save at the beginning, as I said, becomes infatuated with the player characters, so much so that he invites them on a boar hunt in the woods. This is a fun little combat encounter, not really threatening, but it's meant to set up the fact that this noble is a little obsessed, a little off his rocker, and he plays a big part in the second module. The third thing that happens is trouble at the Rusty Dragon. So, a local former adventurer turned innkeep, Amiko Kaijitsu is so happy that the player characters are local heroes, she offers them free room and board for a week. During this time, Amiko's father comes in and says they're leaving. She goes, well, why? It's none of your concern. You and I are leaving or else you're being cut out of the family will. She goes, okay, bye. It sets up a little bit of tension. It lets the player characters become more, more endeared to the barkeep, Amiko. And it sets up a later part of the module. Also, it's worth noting that the presence of Ameko and her father implies the bigger world of Pathfinder because she's Tianjin, and that's literally the other side of the Pathfinder world. It occupies the same geographic location as East Asia would occupy in the real world. And Galarian is a little bit modeled after the real world in that respect. There is uh, sort of an... European continent that the inner sea region is sort of Europe, North Africa, and West Asia, uh, Asia Minor, and that creates this melting pot setting around the inner sea, which is equivalent to the Mediterranean Sea in the real world. That sort of melting pot setting is great, but it's nice to see that they're even immediately incorporating material beyond this setting to remind us that this is a full Earth-sized world with all sorts of extra regions and additional areas that might not even come into play in any given campaign. On top of that, Ameko is really important in a later adventure path, but that's not the point. Another thing that I 
do like about that is the inclusiveness in this module. The mayor of town is a woman. The sheriff of town is Gurundi, which is a dark-skinned race of humans. And he's in a position of power in this town. And th those small little things show the inclusiveness in this setting. As later adventure paths have uh, gone on, they even allow people of non-binary genders and non-heteronormative uh, relationships to come to the forefront as powerful NPCs. Or as uh, miscellaneous characters that just happen to be in any given scene or any given area of the world. Because Pathfinder's world has that sort of ethnic and sexual inclusion that maybe has taken a lot longer in our world to become the mainstream. And I really think that that's important because the more of that sort of inclusion we have, not only does it make our hobby more open to people outside of the standard white male cisgendered presentation, but it also gives us a more interesting array of stories that can be told through the medium. Anyway, back to the module. There are two parts of the local hero section that John and I do not like. I, I mean, they're they're good in principle. Like, they have an interesting idea behind them, but I feel like they kind of put the player characters in a position that's not really fun and doesn't really contribute to the game a lot. One of them, the first one, is the shopkeeper's daughter, which starts out with the DM being recommended to pick a popular ladies' man or popular character from the group and have him be approached by a shopkeeper's daughter who uh, is trying to seduce him. The problem with this is that it plays out into a no-win scenario of the shopkeeper's daughter either failing to seduce the character and becoming angry with them and generally soiling their reputation in the city for giving her the cold shoulder, or... If the player character goes along with it, then the module as written has her father discovering the affair and being very angry about it. This results not only in the player characters having difficulty being now unable to purchase anything from this shopkeeper's general store, but also he sullies their reputation about town, and that just felt forced to me. I mean, I guess it would be an interesting scenario in a situation where one of the player characters already had this sort of proclivity and you wanted to make it something that they would have to get in trouble with and maybe talk their way out of or smooth over the damage that they've done by doing this but it really feels forced as written in the module even worse though is the next part monster in the closet one of the goblins from the raid at the beginning of the module has snuck away and hidden in a closet in a little boy's room. The little boy has a dog that yaps at the closet every night, and the boy goes, Mommy, Daddy, there's a monster in my closet. Well, the father goes in and searches and discovers this horrible goblin. The goblin comes out, kills the dog, bites the kid, then attacks the father. The mother takes the child and goes and finds the player characters. When they come back, they discover that the father has already died, and even if they kill the goblin, the resolution of this is that the family goes, well, you should have been better heroes, which is a no-win scenario. Even if the player characters do everything in their power to go in and try and be heroes and try and save the father, he's already dead by the time they get there. There's an aside in the original that mentions that this might be a 
shade too far for certain player character groups. It might be a little over the top, but the point of the encounter, which I agree with, is to emphasize that goblins aren't just a jokey monster that's easily brushed off. They are vicious, murderous beasts in this particular context, and they need to be taken seriously as such. Now, you could run this encounter several different ways. You could have the father uh, run away or lock the goblin in the closet or something of the sort that prevents it from playing out in this particular way and still be able to drive home the point that the vicious, dangerous goblin is an actual threat that might kill women, children, pets, completely unsuspecting civilians, just anyone. And that would be useful to the game, but I feel that as it's written in the module, it's just a shade too far and doesn't really contribute anything but putting us in one of those horrible no-win scenarios that are the reason I hate the Dragon Age RPG so much. Sorry, go on. The last two parts of this section happen one after another. There's grim news from Mosswood. A local ranger comes in and informs the player characters, hey, bad things are happening. The normally warring tribes of goblins in the region have all started massing together and stopped fighting with one another, and this is bad news. There's not really much that the player characters uh, can do here, but the sheriff of town goes, well, if they're uh, massing together, I need to go to Magnamar and secure more forces to help defend our town, leaving the player characters as kind of the de facto town guard. He deputizes them and lets them basically keep their hero status. After he leaves, it is discovered that Amiko didn't show up for work. Real quick side note, that whole thing with the goblins, Shalelu, the elven ranger, actually tells the player characters a lot of information about the goblins and the goblin tribes, and the two major goblin tribes, the Licktoad and Birdcruncher tribes, are the tribes from the first two Weeby Goblins modules, and one of the goblin heroes mentioned, Vorka, a notorious goblin cannibal, is the major villain of the first Weeby Goblins module, and there's a lot of interconnection between the different Pathfinder modules and materials in this way, and I think it's really cool that you can explore the world that way through these different modules. It's an interesting way of telling these collaborative stories in ways that makes them link up and makes them recognizable to players. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's great. But anyway, yes, the missing bartender. So Amiko has gone missing. And the player characters at some point think to check her room. If you go in there, you discover a note from her brother. Her brother says that he has discovered some information that their father might have been linked to the goblin attack on the town, and that he and Amiko need to talk. So that she needs to meet at the family's glassworks to discuss it. Well, if she's been gone for a while, the player characters naturally will go to the glassworks. Glassworks is the next major set piece of the adventure, and it's meant to be a place where a number of battles take place, not only with goblins, but with Amiko's brother, who, of course, is not on the up-and-up about this situation. One thing about this set piece, though, is that the entire glassworks is at a 45-degree angle. It's it's all diagonals. And I think that this might have been an intentional choice specifically to make the player characters focus on how diagonal movement works in Pathfinder. It's something that they might otherwise overlook, but this really puts an emphasis on that. 
I think every Pathfinder adventure path has at some point in a fairly early module a dungeon or battle that's arranged like this at this angle. And I think my historic response has always been to just turn them 45 degree so it all lines up on a grid properly. Because frankly, it's a lot simpler. But it's actually a really cool set piece. The battle ensues. You find Amiko's father has been encased in molten glass by her brother, which is a horrible way to go. It's... It's awful. If you're the DM, describe it in as much awful, gruesome detail. Make your player characters go, okay, please stop. I don't want to hear this anymore. It's it's gross and awful. After that, you go into the basement of the glassworks and free Amako from a cell. But you also find that in the basement, it links up to the Catacombs of Wrath. Now, the Catacombs of Wrath seem like kind of a misplaced portion in this adventure. It's just a little bonus dungeon tacked on to what's going on here. The main things that you'll find here are a number of monsters called Sin Spawn that are sort of a unique low-end monster, and a number of hints regarding the ancient Thassalon Empire that's kind of a focal piece of this adventure. Frankly, it's not really super memorable here until you come back to it later in the adventure path. But we're going to skip over most of that. It's just a little dungeon crawl. There's not much in there. After you have cleared out the glassworks, you discover in Pseudo's effects that he and his love have been leading the goblins and banding them together at Thistletop, one of the goblin warrens. So, the player characters, being mighty adventurers, go off to Thistletop to try and break up this soon-to-be-coming goblin assault. Thistletop is a three-level dungeon set in kind of a little offset island thing, and a little bit of uh, flavor that I really enjoy here is that this whole little islet thing is in a giant carved head, which used to be part of a massive statue. Which you may or may not encounter this information at all, but I absolutely love it. It's it's cool, it's nifty, and it gives, gives a lot of flavor to what could otherwise be just another generic dungeon. I think it's important to uh, try to stress these things to the player characters when they exist. Maybe draw attention to the unusual nature of this rock formation. Uh, there's an illustration in the Rise of the Rune Lords uh, adventure path that looks like the, like a forehead and the bridge of a nose and all of that with the uh, player characters battling goblins atop it. And it's pretty clear from that angle that it's a statue and this is the head of the statue, but that might not be as obvious to player characters who are literally on top of it. So I feel like you should really try to find an opportunity to let the player characters be aware of that. So Thistletop is made of four discrete parts. There's the briars leading up to the entrance to Thistletop. In this area, you fight a lot of goblins and fight a goblin druid. It's pretty cool. It's nifty. You go into Thistletop proper where you fight nothing but goblins. It's just goblins after goblins after goblins. The most interesting fight is against Warchief Ripnugget and Stickfoot. Warchief Ripnugget has his mounted combat feats and Stickfoot has a climb speed, so he will come down, do ride by attacks on the player characters and run back up these pillars. It's a nifty little fight. Yeah, there are actually a a couple of fights that have a lot of emphasis on terrain and characters that can exploit and otherwise avoid having to deal with the terrain. There's also some information in Thistletop that changes depending on if uh, Suto, Amiko's brother, escaped the encounter with you and might have been beaten but not quite killed and got away. And that changes a few things in 
in there. And that's another cool thing about these is that there's a lot of branching points for things like that. The next level down after Thistletop is the Thistletop Dungeon, where the first level really isn't all that interesting. There's a few uh, mercenary types and people that are going along with the final boss. The most interesting part is the bugbear who is in the harem with the goblins and ew, ew, bad mental images. <laughs> He's just hooking up with his shorties. There's also a goblin nursery, but there's no baby goblins in there. We were actually, uh, when we read through this, we were discussing the old moral dilemma of you defeat the camp of orcs, but you find an orc baby, what do you do? Officially, there is no goblin baby in here, but it also has a note that, like, if you really like to run that sort of thing on your player characters, you can do it. And it, as Jeremy was pointing out earlier, you know, if you do go through with this. If you do go through with this, and there's a goblin baby in there, and the player characters save this goblin baby and return him to Sandpoint, the next character that you run is going to be a goblin that was raised in Sandpoint that wants to be an adventurer like the people who brought him to this life of luxury. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic hook, but it's not a necessity and honestly for most groups that'd probably be just like an uncomfortable reminder that, oh yeah, goblins are sentient creatures. There's a couple of mercenaries there too. There's some interesting characters, but ultimately just the sort of thing that will either get glazed over or one of the player characters will end up befriending one of them, running off with them and getting married or something like that. You never know. But it's great to have these like set piece characters in there with a little bit of background for them so you can run your own direction with them. Thistletop Dungeon Level 2. The final level of this dungeon is fairly small and straightforward. You fight the final boss, a woman named Nualia. She's an Asimir who worships Lamashtu, which is weird and different. Her backstory is that blah blah blah, let's just get to the fight. Wait, wait, no. See, that's the thing. That's what will often happen with these sort of scenarios is you never get a chance to explore these backstories for these characters. And the great thing about these Pathfinder modules is a lot of time these main bosses of the module will have an entire story for how they got to where they are, what their plans are, where they're going with it, and what happens if the player characters don't intervene. And you can lose a lot of that if you don't have your opportunity for the iconic villain monologue. Nualia was raised in Sandpoint, the daughter of the old priest. She was othered by the townsfolk, and when she finally found someone who accepted her, she fell madly in love. Unfortunately, when she found herself in a delicate condition, her love ran away and left her agonized and drove her into a coma. There, she received a vision from Lamashtu. When Nualia awoke, she miscarried, and the thing that was dragged away from her was a horrible monster. Nualia burned down the old temple and her father inside, and has since worshipped Lamashtu. She had her father's remains stolen and offered them as burnt offerings, and has transformed part of her semi-angelic body into a demon arm. So she worships Lamashtu, the mother of monsters, and she herself is a mother of monsters, so she's basically the Lady Gaga of this module. Actually, she with goblins, so it's Lady Ga Goblin. <laughs> After you defeat her, there's just a little bit left of this. Specifically, in a little side room that's hidden, there is a Greater Bargast. And really, the only reason to even deal with this Greater Bargast is to have a big, strong, dangerous encounter. If you defeat him, 
You then see on the wall the Sihedrin rune. Nualia was also wearing a necklace that had the Sihedrin rune. And both of these are the first time the player characters will encounter this very important symbol. This symbol was the symbol of ancient Thassalon, which the rune lords ruled over. This is the first little bit that the player characters get of the greater story. What I want to mention specifically is that this sets the tone for the first module of every adventure path in the Pathfinder Adventure Paths line. One of the main things it does is it gives the characters a smooth introduction to the setting, which typically involves things like skill checks at the Swallowtail Festival or things like that, something that eases the player characters into a non-combat interaction with the game. Then, a simple combat encounter that's considerably easier than what the player characters should be able to handle, but gives them a great opportunity to build some teamwork, to understand how their characters work together, and if they're new to the game, to introduce them to a lot of the concept of the game. Another thing that these first modules tend to do, which this one does, is introduce a dungeon set piece or piece of information that's not going to be important, in this case, until the fifth module, but sometimes all the way until the sixth module of the adventure, or maybe even not important in the adventure at all, but something that could be revisited later. All of these give us great opportunities to make the module and the adventure path itself feel more complete and connected, and that's a really good thing. We can learn a lot from these sort of design choices. Another thing is the monsters with lots of background, the set-piece characters who have backstories that are just enough that you can hook a few things on them, but don't overwhelm the player characters thinking that everyone's going to have this elaborate backstory, and the big villain of the module having a strong connection not only to the module itself, but also to the adventure path and its themes. Up next, we're going to be looking at the second part of the Rise of the Rune Lord's adventure path, the Skinsaw Murders. So once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. I can't say my love's new hand is pleasing to me. Hopefully when she offers Sandpoint to Lamashtu's fire, her new body won't be as hideous. Maybe I'll luck out. Succubi are demons too, aren't they? Pseudo Kaijutsu Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you. 